Hello. The author Victor Hugo once said that music expresses that which cannot be said and on which it is impossible to be silent. Music is so prevalent in our everyday lives that it can occasionally feel like the most disposable art we encounter. It can be reduced to a constant background hum as we go about our daily lives, a part of the air itself, a distraction, a passing pleasantry, and yet music also touches the deepest parts of our primal nature and attaches itself to our memory in a way practically no other art form does. A piece of music, like a Proustian Madeleine, can summon up one's entire childhood, teenage angst, the pain of heartbreak, and the grief of a melody attached to someone loved and lost, as well as joy, and lots of happy things as well. And here with me today to discuss the albums that defined milestones in our lives is the educated, the erudite, Mr. George Taylor. All right. Hello, George. Um, how do you feel about the new intro style? Well, how long did you spend memorising that? <laughs> yeah, I like that you think <laughs> I memorised it. Um, I am Stephen Hussey, and I am with George Taylor today. We are speaking about albums that changed our lives, and I am here in a very uncharacteristically rainy LA talking to George in England. So this podcast is crossing channels now. Uh, how's it over the other side of the pond, George? Also rainy. It was snowing earlier, just normal rain now, but uh, it's fairly textbook British January, February sort of weather. Um, I was also going to jump on. <laughs> We've not quite nailed our theme down as specifically as that, Steve. I would say it's it's a combination of the, the albums that have shaped our lives, but also maybe more... Um, Stealings are stealings a difficult word to use in this this context because I don't I don't sure, sure. that's what we're doing. But um, the music magazine Pitchfork do a feature where they interview far more uh, qualified than us people to talk about the albums that were important to them every five years, so 10, 15, 20, 25 um, ages in their lives. That's kind of what my plan was for this one. I don't know if yours is slightly different, but that therefore doesn't mean that it's maybe the most meaningful album, but one that, that was just flashing up for you at, at that age. So if we kind of squeak those two together, we might cobble something. <laughs> Um, Do you notice there's a running there's a running pattern of every podcast at the beginning? You correct me on what the theme actually is. <laughs> if that and was it, a correction, uh, then we're in big trouble because that was <laughs> particularly good. No, uh, usually it, usually it's that I I ill define the theme, um, and then George gives it the nuance it deserves and kind of corrects us on course. So yes, you're right. It's not um, it's not necessarily our top five albums of all time it's kind of the albums that we were that were very present at a certain period of our lives that we are very aware of maybe loved maybe that meant something to us at a certain age and um arbitrary ages steve let's let's make sure that's that's known it's at, at the 10 <laughs> tens and five milestones of our lives not um not like the year you got married you know not um not milestones that we determined but the arbitrary five-year leaps through our lives Oh, yeah. And uh, as listeners, <laughs> as regular listeners will know, we're both 30. So we've got a clean gap here, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 and 30. I've um, not done one for five, but I can cobble something together while you're doing yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you, why don't you kick, kick us off with the earliest 
album on your list? What's the what's the first thing that comes up for you, and uh, what what meanings does it have for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, just very quickly before I do that, I'd like to say that uh, this podcast is now available on Spotify, and that's something that I think maybe we can talk about throughout this as well. The ways that um, the ways that we and therefore our peers, I suppose, consume music, because I think we go about it in quite different ways, and I think that could be quite interesting. So, um, if that if that just crops up as we go, then then there's another theme just sort of weaved in as we go. So, um, yeah. The earliest album I have on my list is for me from the age of 10 and it's fairly predictably, it's a Beatles album and it's the album Help. Um, for my 10th birthday, I received a CD player and Help and A Hard Day's Night. In my head, I'd always kind of thought that Help was more mine and A Hard Day's Night was more my brother's album. Um, I don't really know why because they were my presents but there we go it was a big birthday for me as well actually I got the first Harry Potter book um one of the first first at school to get it Steve so it was a very meaningful birthday but um yeah that that um that musical gift sort of set me on a bit of a journey really I've I've always loved music ever since and the Beatles have probably been like I imagine most or lots and lots of people they've been that kind of band that have been present throughout uh, and help one that really stuck for being a combination of their really early very accessible pop music and then just that slightly darker deeper more adult you know songwriting really the stuff that reflect reflects the things they were listening to at the time but as a 10 year old kid it's just a great album with really easy sing-along you know Dizzy Miss Lizzie is as enjoyable to a 10 year old as something like you've got to hide your love away. Right. Whereas as you get older, the meanings behind those songs just take on a lot more impact. But um, I would say that at that age, that was an album that made me investigate music more than just what was playing on the radio and understanding bands a little bit more and kind of latching on and thinking, oh, I love George Harrison because he's got the same name as me, you know, and just kind of, um, taking more of an interest in the people behind the music rather than just listening to what's coming out of the speakers because my dad had the radio on kind of thing. So um, for me, that was a very formative album. Um, yeah. And if I think about it now, I probably prefer Hard Day's Night. I think I'm going to put my neck out there and say that that's the greatest ever pop album in terms of songwriting. Every song, a Lennon and McCartney song, no covers. Every song's about three minutes long no nonsense no filler but uh help just very formative for me so yeah that's that's my first pick um i'm very envious that you got given the beatles that early to be honest because i i was well we'll definitely come to mine later but i was uh i was definitely later to properly get into the beatles and as you say there were certain songs that were present as long as i could remember from the beatles but never Never was I aware of where they sat in album form for a mm -hmm. long time. Um, so you were you were gifted it just as a present out of nowhere. You got given the Beatles album when you were ten. Yeah, well, yeah, but I think always in the car when we'd be sort of dropped off to school or whatever, my my mum and dad had all the Beatles albums on either cassette or CD in the cars, and I wouldn't know maybe at an early age the real distinction between albums and the meaning of that, but. I'd recognise the album covers and know about them. So I think I'd kind of absorbed all the Beatles music from a much earlier age. But this was the first time when I had one. I think probably the first time we had them on CD, actually, and that they were mine. Um, and that's when my kind of attachment with music 
really came from. And like you say, it's always there in the ether before, but when you can kind of, yeah, build a relationship with it in a way that's your own and then have some kind of little emotional experience or whatever that you relate to that is, is quite an important stage, I think, in, in most people's lives. Um, yeah. I, I think, uh... well, just, I, I, I'm aware I've been talking a lot, uh, monologuing, but that, that point about how we consume music, I think my, I'm one of the few people who probably still buys CDs and I really like to own my music and have my music on iTunes and organize it as my own thing. And I've got a feeling that having it from such an early age gifted to me in that way is probably why I'm like that rather than, you know, streaming or, or the other ways that the majority of people now consume music. Yeah, as long as I've known you, you've always bought CDs and always still been a CD shopper, which has been very impressive. Um, I, I think I stopped quite a long time ago getting physical CDs. Um, but um, yeah, I, uh, I think that is a very solid first choice. I'm actually just looking at the album now and there's only one song over three minutes on there, which is Ticket to Ride. And uh, I love, I always love that about Beatles albums, just that, that it, you, you can't believe how much they're cramming. Like certain songs in my head seem so rich and then they last for about two minutes, 10 seconds when you actually yeah. look at them, like Help Itself. Help Itself is just like two minutes, 20. And it's, uh, it's kind of amazing compared to some quite extravagant, let's say indulgent pop songs. They actually managed to keep everything so tight. And it's one of the, one of the great pleasures of the Beatles is that nearly no track outstays its welcome. Uh, oh, 100%. And, uh, and of course, that album has Yesterday, which I, for my money, I mean, Yesterday is, I saw on a program recently, I think it might be the, the third best, uh, in terms of they were looking at which songs of all time have accrued the most royalties. And I think Yesterday was third. Mm, uh, I think it's, is it the most covered song, right? So that's probably why it would. Yeah, well, well, the, one, the ones that had, yeah, the ones that had the biggest royalties were always that. So second was White Christmas, which is, mm. I think, the most covered song of all time, they okay. said. And uh, the first was Happy Birthday, which was kind of a, a troll answer, but it, it yeah. was technically copyright for years. But um, yeah, Yesterday is this, to, to my money, the most perfectly constructed uh, just song written. I think. I think the melody of the verse and the chorus are both unbelievably strong. It all happens in two minutes, and it's full of heart and emotion. So I think it might be McCartney's two-minute masterpiece. Big, big words, but justifiable. Um, so, I'll, should I jump onto one of mine, or yeah. you got more to say on? Hit me back. That's. I mean, what what else needs to be said about the Beatles? Really, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll pop up again in this this hour or so, but. Um, for now, let's move on to you, yeah. Um, so I, I, I stuck with the vague idea of age five and I thought to myself, I wasn't aware of the album as a concept at age five, probably. Um, I probably didn't own any albums. But uh, when I think of that age, the songs that were most floating around for me, even though I didn't know them in album form, were most of the songs off of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, and because... My parents, uh, you know, my parents are into Michael Jackson, my cousins, like it was just so, I think anyone around that age at that time, Michael Jackson was pretty much, you know, ubiquitous in his sort of king of pop. Um, 
sort of time. But um, so what's those, this when you were yeah, five? This is like early nineties, right? Yeah, this is between yeah, but between the ages of sort of five and ten, I was just constantly aware. Like we we loved the film thriller, uh, the <laughs> short film that they the made to accompany it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the zombies dancing, we had, yeah, just that song was constantly, it was something we were obsessed with. And to a lesser extent, but there was like Billie Jean and The Girl Is Mine. Um, you know, the, uh, what's the, um, I'm just literally trying to think of the other song on there uh, that we listened to when we were kids. Oh, we listened to, uh, yeah, like Human Nature. Just those songs were kind of constantly there when I was a kid and my mum was always playing them, my aunt was playing them. So it was... I, I didn't have any awareness that it was a full album, but that would probably be the first, you know, the first big songs when I was a kid at that age. Yeah. Um, well, something actually just from listening to some of those, there's another podcast topic I'm very, very keen to do is on a musical kind of angle is the th the best three songs in a row on any album. And I think Thriller probably has maybe the definitive one i think we we can uh we can discuss it at a later date but the, the there's like a one two three punch the kind of you know thriller beat it billy jean is about as strong as pop music gets really yeah it's uh it's an incredible and 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 even bookending those two there's like the girl is mine and human nature which are both good you know really solid tracks anyway so it's uh McCartney yeah, a little McCartney in there. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it's an album where I think we've discussed before. The actual title song fits oddly in the album. It, it's almost I don't know if it's you know because we think of the album as um, the album itself is kind of meant to be a either thematically coherent, sometimes musically coherent, um, sometimes defining a point in the actual uh, songwriter's life, but. It's like Thriller itself, it, it's just, it's kind of a strange track on the Thriller album. Would you agree? I would. I, think, I, I would agree. If... It's kind of this strange, dark, a strange, almost a concept theme, you know, almost like Halloween theme track um, that has all these old fashioned, like horror movie sort of noises and things. And it's, it's like, like Vincent got strange, Price on it, right? Vincent Price monologue. And, and the rest of the songs are quite poppy quite dancey and things like that um yeah, yeah it's just I, kind of odd that the whole album is named after that song which does have a strange place in it i guess i guess it's because if it's capturing a moment in his life or career it's the time when he becomes like you said ubiquitous earlier like ubiquitous on mtv right and thriller is all of the great songs on that all have great videos so it kind of doesn't matter that thematically it doesn't fit because the theme would be i've absolutely dominated the video music medium and this is the collection of those songs. Those songs are almost lesser things without the videos, right? So um, just capturing those as a collection of what he was putting out at that time is a pretty amazing, amazing album. Yeah, and actually now you say that, there's like three, you know, Beat It, Billie Jean and Thriller were all big videos uh, for those songs, right? So it's yeah. like, they, they were all very much, you, you hear those songs and you can literally picture the videos and that must be one of the first times that that was actually true right um, that, that they were so linked to a visual image uh, yeah there's, there's probably a little bit like some videos predating that but you know not the most famous guy in the world being on 
on rotation all the time just yeah dominating everything so yeah nothing nothing to that magnitude at all it's an amazing album um all right um where next well it's it's probably me at 15 steve which is not a pretty sight i would say but uh <laughs> <laughs> take it take us there take us there emotionally where where are you emotionally i don't think i don't think i can go back that i don't think i can get back to that um it, yeah wasn't looking my best i have to say but musically steve i was plowing an amazing furrow um the certainly the only plowing going on um <laughs> uh, uh another good friend of ours actually um our good friend adam uh him and i spent a lot of our sort of mid-teenage years just swapping albums and i think the beatles had kind of set me on that path and then yeah from kind of 14 15 onwards i just became really obsessed with music and i became really obsessed with sort of quote unquote like traditional rock music um and the album for me from that period would be led zeppelin and led zeppelin 2 um yeah just kind of everything a rock a good rock album should be i think the best i would say each member of that band is the best at their particular thing give or take a bit of debate and a bit of fan boying or girling but kind of archetype rock singer archetype rock guitarist probably the best drummer of all time and the best bassist slash session player so you got four very heavy hitters putting together admittedly a lot of kind of mind and stolen that word cropping up again um blues and rock music from artists of maybe 20 or 30 years prior to them but packaging it and just delivering it in an incredible way i think robert plant when this album's put together is like 20 or 21 it's just very depressing um just amazing rock music a whole lot of love you know the definitive riff uh just everything about it it's, it's a powerful strong um dominating rock album and for a 15 year old boy it had yeah it had a lot of uh lot of effect on me and kind of the way my musical taste my look at that time and all those sorts of things were dictated um uh, and we had the good fortune to live very close to mr jimmy page um when we were living in london i walked past him a couple of times and it's the i don't really get starstruck but certainly the closest i would be to ever being starstruck and uh, being in the company of of jimmy page for sure um yeah we did we saw him at whole foods didn't we we did yeah what a day um <laughs> cappuccino if you're that, wondering you that there. was the f- that was the first time I've seen you genuinely um, just just sort of knocked off your socks by just a person that you yeah. saw. Um, well, you I were quite because I've spent so many hours listening to his creative output. You know, it must be how our podcast listeners would ever feel listening to our, uh, meeting us. Yeah, yeah, good point. We we <laughs> shouldn't say the coffee shops we frequent actually for that reason. Um, I. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I did. You, you were genuinely starstruck, um, and uh, I, you know, I've had. I, I can't really, I can't really give much contribution to this because I'm probably a very uh, dip my toe in the water Led Zeppelin person. I've listened to the albums through very few times. Um, I'm a bit more mainstream, George, and I'm more of a fan of Led Zeppelin Four. Um, no problem there. Uh, but um, but yeah, I. Uh, I I, I kind of have this, you know, and this isn't an insult to it. It's probably just my personal taste, but I, I love it on, you know, on in the background, but it's not, it's almost not something I put, you know, 
I just put and sit and listen to that those kind of long bluesy tracks it's I, I don't know maybe it's my preference for I like very tight short things and obviously you know kind of rock and roll blues album like that they the songs tend to be more about they kind of drift and they have solos and things like that and I I kind of find it more it's something I like the mood of more than I would sit I sit and listen to individual tracks but that's probably a personal preference. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, Led Zeppelin II is more, I would say that it's a lot longer than a Beatles album, track by track, but average track length is probably about four and a half minutes, which is fairly standard now, um, possibly even a bit short for pop music now. Um, whereas Four's got a couple of much longer tracks. Two doesn't really have anything beyond, you know, beyond you know, like five minutes there's one track that's six minutes long but the rest of them are in that kind of four minute bracket um i just love it because it's just very punchy lots of riffs it just does what a kind of textbook rock album should be in terms of uh yeah just the virtuosity of each of the members and it, it conjures up feelings of autumn for me i don't really know why maybe i just first got it in the autumn but it's yeah if i ever listen to it it's suddenly brown leaves and uh yeah cooling weather you never fully grew your hair out <laughs> that Zeppelin style. You did have kind of, you did have quite floppy, unkempt hair at that age. I did, um, and uh, I was certainly running the running the gauntlet at our school. Um, boys' hair had to be above collar length, and mine certainly drifted below the collar length. So I, uh, I was always scampering around trying to avoid anyone looking out for the boys to get their hair cut. But um, yeah, I so, never went. I never went, you know, perm or anything like that. So if you ladies out there love a bad boy, <laughs> George, George was over collar length at 15. And Steve, um, the, fri the fringe was hanging down below the eyes to hide any acne that may have accrued on my forehead. So uh, yeah, the full yeah, package, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've great all been man, there. Great man. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one noticed the thing. Yeah. Um, well, it's lovely. It's, that's heartwarming. Um, where was I at that age, you ask? Mm. Um, I so I went to the next one. I, this is going to probably be ten to fifteen, okay. probably closer to the, closer to teen years. But I was thinking to myself, you know, it's easy to kind of pick albums. Uh, the dilemma with this task you set for this podcast, George, was: do I pick albums that make me sound cool, or do I be very honest and say this is what was the soundtrack at the time? Now I don't have these kind of like things that I love that I'm embarrassed about. I actually, most of what I like, I have no guilt about at all, mm. but it's just kind of that thing of like, do I want to go for something kitsch and a bit off the wall and say, this is the kind of edgy teenager I was, or do I be honest? So I was, uh, the thing that probably defined my sort of 15 year old life was the neo pop punk band Blink 182. Lovely. And you know, Blink-182 divide opinion. Some love them. Some uh, hate that whole that whole vibe that came along with the Green Days, the Sun 41s, those sort of California uh, kind of poppy punk, very melodic, uh, simple chord kind of bands. But to me, Blink-182 was the king of them. Yes, Green Day fans, Blink-182 was the king of them. Uh, Green what, Day... Can I ask, a, can I ask yes. what drew you to them? Because I... I avoided them like the plague um, 
I've never ever listened to any of those bands. I've obviously heard the singles or if they're played in a club or something, but I've never sat down and listened to them or sought them out. And I, what captured you as a what 15 year old? What drew you to them? What was it? Um, I think it was someone introduced me to them. I think actually, to be honest, first someone brought me to, before I knew many of their songs at all, someone had tickets to a Blink-182 concert. And I remember my brother had just started listening to some of it. And I kind of came to the concert and it was just like such a, uh, I don't know, it was like just properly first going to your concert and just sort of, you know, be, being moshing about and all that stuff, like being in the sweaty sort of standing area. And it was just kind of, um, I, I, I think, to be honest, there's a certain age where you're starting to, for example, you know, you're starting to like girls, you're starting to get a bit, you know, edgy and think about all these deep issues and you start to think you're deep and you start to get very angsty and I love that person but they don't love me back and kind of Blink-182 are like the perfect band for that feeling really because they they kind of capture this youthful optimism and vigor and there's kind of that that like go out and live and fun sort of part of them and being a dumb teenager and then there's also a very sort of you know heavy tough angsty heartbreak side and uh and i think what blink One Eight Two are seriously underrated for is is their strength of melody and you kind of you know the problem is i think as a band they are known through the prism of such a small selection of songs that people know like all the small things mm -hmm. and kind of a small handful that if you haven't listened to their albums that's all you really know and there's just so many I don't know. It's it captures a mood and a feeling to me. I think the the album that particularly defines that period of my life is the cheekily titled Enema of the State. Yeah. Um has a cover of sort of a sexy woman with a rubber glove on it, a sure. sexy nurse. Red right um, to a ball so for you, isn't it? So sort of all, already, you know, there's a kind of juvenile tone struck, but actually the album has has a you know certain chunks where it's like like you say about like three album chunk of great songs it has like track nine, 10, 11 on there, all great songs. The first one is an absolute like banger just starting out the album. It immediately puts you in the mood. It's um, yeah. I, I don't know how to say it other than that. They're actually catchy melodic um, songs that define being a teenager to me. And if you're at that age, there's kind of nothing that makes you feel more, I don't know, you feel more, you feel like kind of understood and you feel like your, your kind of angsty emotions have meaning. And unlike the later bands that came, which were kind of emo, which I never was into, Blink-182 never went to that side of being just like, like a My Chemical Romance where it's all about quite, you know, quite an emo vibe. That it takes came itself up. quite seriously, was, right? Yeah, there was more fun. There was more like, you know, that, that sort of California in the sun vibe still. They, they were from San Diego and it was just kind of, yeah, to me, it was like the soundtrack of it. You said the other, the Led Zeppelin was autumn to you. Blink-182 is kind of like a long summer mm. and maybe, maybe you fall in love with a girl that doesn't quite love you back, but it's good anyway. And you have these kind of good memories. Maybe you even get a kiss, George, and it doesn't go anywhere after that. But um, yeah. When, you sp that, when you're spending your long summers indoors playing video games, you don't have to worry about that, I suppose. So. Yeah. Well, maybe if I did less of that, I'd have got more kisses from girls. Possibly, um, yeah.
Um, yeah, so that was that was one that uh, I have to say defines that period of my life. Is that um, is that also music that you still listen to now, uh, or is that kind of parcelled off back in that time and you don't really revisit it? Um, there's actually quite a bit of it has aged pretty well, I'd say. There's there's things from my youth that didn't age as well for me. Like some of even, I don't know, let's say another album I was listening to at the time, much darker, but the Marshall Mathers LP by Eminem. Hmm. Still, still a great album, but it actually has aged worse for me than something like the Blink-22 on where there's, there's some songs on the old Eminem ones where I just don't, I don't have the attachment to them that I did when I was, a, they, they seemed more when I was a teenager and now it's like, it's so angry and things sometimes I just don't really have the relation to it anymore. Um, yeah. You know, there's still really great Eminem songs, but I don't know. It was like an album I listened to to death at the time. And now I don't really go back and listen to yeah. those songs. Whereas yeah. the Blink-182 ones, I actually would put on for a certain mood more. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So George grows up. Where does he go next? Well, George grows up, leaves school, doesn't go to university, starts working at Waterstones, has to drive back and forth every day. What's on the radio, Steve? It's Neil Young's live album, Live at Massey Hall, recorded in 1971. This is, um, I don't know why, I think it was the only CD I had in my car for about a year, so I just listened to it every day, there and back, driving to work. And um, I, I guess it's, it's not cheap for this, but it's a way of kind of crowbarring in three or four Neil Young albums worth of songs because he's playing, I guess this was after, yeah, I think this was after he'd recorded his first four out, first four albums. So you've got a really incredible range of, of tracks on it. Um, I think again, he's, he's very young at this stage, maybe 25, 26 at the oldest, probably. Um, now I'm now a very big Bob Dylan fan and have always loved kind of this, well, not always loved, but worked my way through into the singer songwriters of that period as being the kind of artists I love, probably because of songs like You've Got to Hide Your Love Away on Help that kind of wet my whistle for them. But I was much uh, quicker into Neil Young than I was Bob Dylan. So Neil Young was kind of my my grounding in all of this, this kind of Californian singer songwriter music. And this is just an incredible live album. Live albums are normally a bit bit bloated a bit self-indulgent or they're kind of good if you were there but some of the takes on this are certainly better than some of the album tracks and his voice is just so pure and clean he doesn't have the best voice in the world at all but it just it sort of sings with emotion very effectively and yeah um, yeah it it's just it's an incredible live album it it's got uh perfect versions of uh, things like old man and i think it's stuck yeah. with me because he has lyrics lyrics in it that sort of fit the age i was at something about being 24 and there's there's so much more and that kind of thing um yeah it it really really got into me like hooked itself into me and yeah it's incredible and he does fantastic acoustic versions of tracks that were a lot rockier on the studio studio albums like um cowgirl in the sand and down by the river just very powerful songs and i think at that stage when you find that songs have a hidden meaning that you don't really get the first time you think oh wow i'm you know i'm 
I'm gaining an access into a world that other people don't know about almost like I've earned the right to appreciate this song because I've listened to it a lot more and I've you know got the double meanings or that kind of thing so it's a bit um bit sort of self-congratulatory but it's just a great way to to enjoy music when you sort of appreciate things that are there that you wouldn't get on the first or second or fifth listen maybe but um for a man and a guitar and maybe a bit of harmonica a bit of piano is it's just incredible and i've not i've not listened to it a ton since that period but if i think of you know what i was doing at that time the, these songs just shine out for me and uh which which live album is that what's the name of that live album again it's called live at massey hall so i think that's a venue in toronto 1971 is that the one where he does he do a version of hey hey my my no this is this is well before that this is about 10 years well eight years before that song uh right yeah oh it's got um Oh, it has got some of the greats on it. I just seen now. Uh, a man needs a maid is a great song. There's a world. They they kind of have these like lush orchestral arrangements in the original. That like there's a world always has this vibe where it sounds like a Disney song to me with some of the. Uh, it's like the London Philharmonic Orchestra in the background. Right. I have uh, to say on this, that's a bit more of a dirge on this one because it's just more acoustic, him, right. and a, him and a piano. But um, the standouts on this one are probably. On the way home, tell me why, old man. Uh, Needle and damage done, and dance, yeah, dance, dance. Uh, I am a child as well. So he's also he does quite a few of the earlier Buffalo Springfield songs that he was involved with. But um, yeah, if you like a, a guy on a guitar, then this is pretty flawless stuff. Yeah, Needle and the Damage Done, great song. Um, great vocals on that as well. Um, is Dance, Dance, Dance where Haruka Murakami got his title from for his Ooh. book? That's a great question. I don't think so, because I think the song was originally called Love is a Rose, and he just changed it for this concert, potentially. So I think when it was on a studio, like this live album came out retrospectively, like a kind of vault archive re-release that I guess came out in 2005 or six or something. So the studio version of that song that existed initially was from the Neil Young decade i think it's called which was a kind of studio anthology that he released during the 70s and this song was at that time called love is a rose i think i'm uh, i'm stretching my memory as as much as i can so i'm going to consult the archives but um yeah i don't think that would be where the title comes from um mm, interesting yes it was called love is a rose so i don't think murakami dug it out from there but proof you know i'd be happy to to know I'm wrong if that's the case. Nice. Um, well, uh, yeah, I um, I did consider, but it, it actually didn't make my list. I did consider putting Neil Young's Harvest as one of mine Ooh. on this. Uh, it's it was definitely around the orbit, but probably not quite pivotal enough. But I think you introduced me to that. So uh, oh, amazing! Uh, you've been great. You've been a great Neil Young evangelist for me and our uh, both our listeners. <laughs> that's a little joke uh i know there's at least three of you out there yeah. um i uh yeah yeah so that's cracking stuff if someone wants to sink their teeth into neil young for the first time um i uh this age uh so i'm 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 still looking i'm looking late teens i'm looking going to university maybe early early 20 20 Tr- sort of thing you wearing a trilby and a tie to nightclubs 
never wearing a trilby. Okay. I am. So if I'm at university, I'm occasion, very occasionally going out, maybe popping on a skinny tie if I'm Ooh, trying to be. You want to look I smart for what, a club, don't you? I don't know what I'm trying to be, but I'm, I'm, occasionally, <laughs> thinking of pop, I'm occasionally thinking of popping on a skinny tie and, and even wearing trainers with it sometimes. Why um, not? Yeah, so what, what look is that? Well, it's business, um, business upstairs, pleasure downstairs, isn't it? It's <laughs> really fraction. Um, yeah, and uh, so I reckon around this age, my pivotal album will be one that you love as well, George. Baby, is this it by The Strokes? Oh yes. Um, I was aware of The Strokes when I was at school. I remember at some point someone, just a friend of ours, just just putting in his headphones and saying, "Listen to this," and it was Reptilia by The Strokes, which is on a different album. But I remember hearing that. And just being like, what is this? Mm. And it was just that that riff on the chorus just instantly had me hooked. It's like a very uh, just unique sound. It's kind of retro, but also kind of completely new and fresh at the same time, which is what the Strokes did really well. And I think Is This It is their first album. And it's kind of the, to me, it's the definitive, it, it's like a statement. It came out in 2001. I didn't get into it till sometime later than that, but it it kind of marked a change. I mean, culturally, it was a big moment where it, it invited a wave of pretenders, imitators, and kind of a new indie revolution of the noughties, I would say. It it has it's tight, it's like eleven tracks, um, and it's it's got Last Night on it, which was a huge song at the time uh i remember that would come on on nights out and places and like certain birthday parties just everyone would love that song uh kind of got an old-fashioned throwback video where they like smash up the stage a bit like the who um the opening track is this it it's kind of it's kind of like the lyrics uh the actual the actual mood of it it's like when you're listening to the strokes it sounds like they're not trying and in a good in the best way possible it sounds like the songs just almost make themselves and Julian Casablanca's voice, it's just kind of, it's a little bit sometimes almost fuzzy on the microphone, but it's, it kind of just sounds like he's just picked up a microphone, a beer stay microphone is just kind of singing into it. Um, but it's kind of deceptively brilliant in its construction. Uh, the songs kind of, yeah, I don't know. What can you say about it, George? You're a big well, fan of it. It was, it was actually my next pick as well. So that's fantastic. Uh, sort of, you know, great minds there. I, it's funny you mentioned Reptilia as well, Steve. That was the first song I ever illegally downloaded. So, uh, yeah, great memories there. Um, Thanks, Sean through... Parker. <laughs> yeah, it was through Napster, actually. So, yes, yeah, Sean got me onto them. But, yeah, it's, it's when, when I asked that question of do you still listen to the kind of uh, like offspring and those sorts of bands i think this has aged incredibly well it doesn't feel dated at all to me um oh, no. not at all and i think that thing you say about them not really trying has sort of done that i guess they're what they're super wealthy like upper east side new york private school kids so they could kind of afford to not really care because it you know it didn't matter if if they didn't succeed in a way so they could just do their thing and i don't know if that's the best way to describe it but um 
it's just it's the definitive kind of early noughties rock album i got into it later than you probably 2008 or 9 um and I just spent weeks listening to it on repeat. Um, I, I do listen to their second album a fair bit and the third one less so, the others almost not at all, but this album is just a kind of a thing in of itself. Um, and I was very fortunate actually to go to their first reunion concert after their sort of hiatus after their third album. Uh, it might have been their second reunion concert, but the first kind of weekend that they were playing together again. and. It was just incredible. They were so tight still. And again, they're all sort of virtuosos on the instruments. Like the guitarists are just incredible. Um, yeah, amazing stuff, super well produced, uh, a lot richer and more layered than you'd realize for how initially like sort of tossed off it's supposed to sound, I guess. There's just so much layering and quality behind it. Um, and like you say, you mentioned last night, they're very sort of self-referential or referential to the music that's gone before them. And when I saw them in this concert, they were, they were singing the lyrics to Tom Petty's American girl over this, because there's been so much chat about how they, they sort of nicked the riff for it. So they were very sort of open to acknowledging that, but um, yeah, it's maybe one of the definitive New York albums as well. Um, Fits the mood and the place just so well. Um, yeah, I absolutely love it. And I think it will be an album that defines that period for just so many people really. And so many bands that came after them owe them a big debt for sure. Yeah, lots of la- later hipster bands definitely were, were aping things the Strokes were doing 10 years before. And, uh, and, and it's just got so many flavors as well. Like, is this it? It starts off like, it's almost like kind of a slow, kind of kind of mournful, track in some ways and uh you know there's lots of kind of existential angst in it but then you've got like like a track like no someday is very nostalgic but then you've got last night which is more upbeat you've got new york city cops which is more kind of aggressive and a bit more like pumping and you kind of uh yeah you just kind of it, it sort of slows down and speeds up at different times and kind of it doesn't it doesn't just have a singular uh singular vibe to it they do that within the songs as well, right? Like hard to explain. It's got that pause almost where you think the song's finished and it starts again. Um, Alone together is really sort of staccato. They play re- like with time signatures and stuff. They they do some really cool stuff. Yeah, I uh, I think it's got to be one of the the post two thousand. I mean, one of the top five to ten most important albums. Uh, yeah, I'd say top, top five for sure for for the music yeah. I like for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, where are you taking us next? Well, in that, that that was where I was planning to go. Um, I'll just I'll champion another album that meant a lot to me at that time, um, because he's someone we've kind of touched on before. So I'll I'll refer to him. And a theme for me as to why an album sticks in my mind as the definitive one from that period of my life is that it's usually the one in my CD player in my car. And at this point, I'm kind of fudging the numbers a little bit, but really sort of university years uh, during undergrad I had Born to Run the Springsteen album just entrenched in my car for the for the drive to Tesco and back so you could get through maybe the first three first three tracks in a journey but what are three tracks they are right Thunder Road 10th Avenue Freeze Out Night um, it's just an absolutely flawless flawless album a masterpiece uh, everything about kind of getting up and 
you know, splitting town and heading out into the world, breaking free of all the things that hold you back. They weren't at all sentiments that I was following up in with my actual life, but it's a nice kind of thing, yeah. to, thing to have on on the radio. Um, yeah, it's just, it's an absolute epic rock album. Um, and I think we've sort of discussed this that um, I've not seen all of it yet, but um, the Springsteen on Broadway, I have to say I haven't enjoyed it as much as I was hoping I would and potentially as much as you enjoyed it because I feel like his shtick's the wrong word, but the way he sort of expresses the sentiment and the mood of his songs in his Broadway performance feels a bit more um, performative and false almost, whereas in the songs they just feel completely... I don't know, true and earnest in a way that they don't to me as much when he's talking about them and then performing them acoustically. So I just think these songs suit the really kind of Phil Spector grandiosity of the overdubs and the saxophones and everything that's just piled onto them. But the songs still hold up to all of that weight, if you see what I mean, whereas other songs with all, all those kind of frills thrown on them would buckle. But his his lyrics and his sort of moods and intentions just support all of that. And I think that's a really impressive test of a songwriter, if they can justify having all those, all those added layers and still stand up to them. Well, I've got to say, I agree with you that I prefer, I prefer these album versions much more to the ones played on the Broadway uh, show. I, I think, I do think Bruce Springsteen lends himself well to the, the high production, you know, the production of those tracks is so distinctive. And once you add the piano, the harmonica, the saxophones and all these like flavors in there, it does a song like Born to Run is lifted through all of that. Um, so I, I do prefer that to just man and his car on stage. Um, but yeah, I, I like the, I like the storytelling in Springsteen on Broadway. Um, I like just the kind of, more the performance of him as an individual but i do agree with you that i'd rather listen to the album songs any day of the week and i think that album is incredibly uh just just yeah like you say for for capturing that feeling of um escape and you're trapped and you feel stifled and you want to get out and live the life you're meant to live and express yourself and do things it's uh yeah, there, there's no, there's no bigger sort of, you know, champion of that than this album. For sure. Um, and I think you introduced me to the boss as well. So again, oh wow, hey. Um, I, uh, I, I'll champion just another album around this time. Um, which it, it's quite a hard one because uh, they have so many, but it's the band. I guess our American listeners will be less familiar with them, but a very influential British band called The Smiths. And The Smiths uh, kind of, you know, they, they get a reputation because their lead singer Morrissey is very outspoken, sometimes to his detriment, um, very opinionated. Some people find him quite annoying. He's very ironic, very sardonic in his humour. Um, but if you actually boil down the you know the songwriting partnership of Morrissey and Johnny Marr is one of the great songwriting partnerships with Morrissey doing more of the lyrical and singing and Johnny Marr obviously one of the great guitarists but 
you, it's hard because the Smiths kind of redid many albums many times. So they have certain albums that they kind of endlessly made these compilation albums that would sometimes repeat tracks they had already recorded before. Um, so their iconic album is The Queen Is Dead, but that to me is not the best one. The best, if you kind of have no knowledge of the Smiths at all, I think you're best to go with the album called Hatful of Hollow. Do you know this one, George? Yeah, so that's the one with lots of the John Peel sessions, right? And the, the yeah. kind of different version takes of them. Yeah, it's got some remasters on there, but if you actually, on a song-by-song -song basis, I think it's got, it's, got, it's got some of their absolute greats. I mean, I think This Charming Man is one of the band's masterpieces. Um, it's got William, It Was Really Nothing. It's got Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, which is a beautiful song. Uh, Still Ill. Um, it's got How Soon Is Now. So it's got a huge amount of kind of what makes the Smiths the Smiths. The only thing it's missing is the band's other crowning glory, which is There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, uh, which is worth seeking out on its own, uh, a separate album. But it's just um, the Smiths are definitely a moment in my life of being, you know, being sort of, not not really having a, not really knowing what direction I was going to take. Um, feeling early on, feeling like I had all these uh, these things in me, things to say. Uh, kind of a cynicism that I found very funny at the time. I still do. There's kind of so much uh, silly playfulness in the lyrics, and just realizing like it sometimes feels like that Morrissey's having his own. He says things earnestly, and you know sometimes he means the exact opposite. And it's kind of that dance between. It's that it, like a song like Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. It's a song basically saying about, you know, I was looking for a job and then I found a job and heaven knows I'm miserable now. And it's kind of the whole song is kind of funny and playful. And there's songs about, you know, being jealous of someone. And, you know, he says wanting to spit in their eye. And it's just these things about these very human things. Um, but yeah, they're, they're often done in a very sardonic, ironic way. And I like that getting to play both sides where sometimes it sounds like, please, please, please let me get what I want. Sounds extremely earnest and heartfelt and it is. And then other times they're just kind of like having their own sense of ironic humor uh, for themselves. Absolutely. I, they're another band that I got to um, a, a fair bit later. All of the reasons that you described why people don't like Morrissey were the reasons I didn't listen to the Smiths for a very long time. I just couldn't get past that kind of image or idea of a person, but I sort of swallowed, swallowed my pride and, yeah, sort of one of the definitive songwriting partnerships of British music, for sure. They are very British in their kind of identity and aesthetic and reference points, right? Very, like, sort of cup of tea and 1950s film I mean, all of their album art comes from sort of old films and clippings from sort of British, you know, almost pre-war cultural history, really, or sort of 40s and 50s cultural history. Um, they're almost like kitchen sink dramas, many of their songs. They're, yeah, fan yeah, fantastic band, great. So, yeah, jangle pop. It's like jangle pop in the way that the birds would be jangle pop, but with this sort of sardonic tone throughout and... Uh, a great energy, earnestness, yeah, anything and everything you could want in pop music is is certainly there. Um, yeah, really great stuff. I would, for me, the Queen is Dead is is the best album. Um, Hatful of Hollow is a little bit like saying the best of the Beatles, <laughs> in a way. But. Yeah, 
But, but I, yeah, I give no. myself parcels because they the Smiths seem to endlessly sort of most of their albums seem to be compilation albums. Yeah, that's true, and I think they're quite different with the US and UK releases as well. Um, like there's that louder than bombs, and there's a few that are they are just versions of greatest hits, but they somehow get away with it with, because they don't directly call them the best of the Smiths. So fair, fair yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you want to take the next one? Well, that that leaves me thirty years old, and you know, uh, come full circle. So, yeah, I, this was probably the hardest one to pick, just because I don't really have a definitive album of my thirties. Well, my thirties—that's already depressing to say. But the others are kind of things I've realised in hindsight. I probably wouldn't be able to say, wouldn't have said them at the time. Um, it's the looking back and you realize which one has resonated for the longest. And I guess making these sort of arbitrary five-year leaps, you sort of elide and miss out lots of the things. Like I listened to quite a lot of hip hop music, but that's not come up because I would have listened to them when I was, you know, 23 and 27. So they've sort of been missed out. So just going on an album that I've listened to a lot this year, that I think kind of fits the, the growing up kind of, I don't know, terminology or, expectations of growing up it's the last roxy music album it's the album avalon um so it's you know brian ferry is like the in my mind a very sort of sophisticated adult rock front man the kind of lounge lizard guy in a tailored suit looking very sort of suave um so it, i feel like it fits that adult pick but it's it's just a great album it's from 1982 it's got more than this and avalon as probably the main standout tracks that you would have heard if you hadn't listened to the album through um but it's it's a great kind of mood piece it's sort of synth synth electronic 80s music but paired back and very calm um yeah it's it's a great album probably their best album I would say not their best individual songs on it necessarily, but as an album, it's it's a it's a fantastic piece of work. And yeah, I've had it on loop for the last couple of weeks, and I I have not got bored of it yet. So for now, I would say that the album that has defined my thirtieth year has been Avalon by Roxy Music. Hmm. I'm gonna. Well, I I have nothing to add on it because I haven't <laughs> listened to it, but. That's a good thing because that means I've got something new out of this. Have you so listened to them as a band at all? Hardly. I know more than this. I'm a big fan of that song. Um, it may even pop up in one of my other ones I'm going to talk about. Oh, um, very good. But yeah, I, uh, yeah I will, I'll have to listen to more. So the first, I think the first three albums, Brian Eno was the, their keyboard player and then he left. So the, the albums after that don't have Eno, but... Um, yeah, they're, they're very kind of uh, influential to in, anything and everything that came after them, really. And Brian Ferry's just a very, very cool man. Interesting. Um, well, I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to swing to things that... Um, well, let, well, let's quickly... We talked about still, still hanging at the same age of the 20, early 20s, George... I'm going to just go Let back it go, and say, Steve. Those days are over. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, that was a very fertile period for discovering music for me. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll say that um, probably, because I, I feel like I can't do this one without saying a Beatles album, because uh, they're too important to me. 
and I decide every year I have a different favorite Beatles album. The one I'm currently going with is Magical Mystery Tour, George. Outrageous. I, it's a very, you know, I, I go from Sgt. Pepper's, I go to Revolver, um, sometimes even Abbey Road. At the moment, I'm going to say Magical Mystery Tour. And that's because, um, am I going to say Magical Mystery Tour? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to say... No, you know what? You know what? I'm going to say Abbey Road right now. Oh, well, I was just going to jump on the mystery tour there just for that topic I mentioned a bit earlier of the best three tracks in a row on an album. Magical Mystery Tour for me certainly has has one of, even you could stretch it to four. There's that run of I'm the Walrus, Hello Goodbye, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. That's that's about as good as music gets. Yeah, I, I again, uh, there's too many good things scattered about in the Beatles all across the discography. Uh, the only one I know isn't my favourite is Let It Be, but mm. all the others probably could be. But um, I uh, no, I, I'll say Abbey Road for now because you got George Harrison doing something. You've got You Never Give Me Your, Your Money, which I think is a great song. You have got Ringo piping up with Octopus's <laughs> Garden. You got you got a whole you got a whole smattering in there. It's it's between that and Sergeant Peppers. I don't know. It, it changes all the time, but just just go listen to any of them. But is that uh, you pretty much now what your favourite is, or are you saying when you were twenty three that that was your favourite? Okay, when I was twenty, when I was early twenties, it was Sergeant Peppers. Okay, um, which is basically what everyone says. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, if you haven't listened to Sergeant Peppers by now, we don't want you as a listener. <laughs> No, I mean no, I don't mean that. Rectify it immediately. It's it's an absolute stunner. Um, I remember sitting on my own, George, and listening to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and I wasn't taking LSD, um, but I was. It was a very weird transitional summer for me where I had nothing going on, and I remember I was just sinking deep into things like albums, basically. And I remember that song coming on and just kind of laying on my bed and. I don't know, wanting to be somewhere else at the time and living home. It was just like, I remember being with my parents a lot that summer and just thinking like I wanted to get out and go somewhere. It was before I went to Oxford. Um, yeah, that album was like a real comfort to me. And I think the Beatles have probably been that for a lot of people. So so after a lot of deliberation, George, Sergeant Peppers, there you go. We That's how that. hard the Beatles are. That's how hard the Beatles are to pin down. You go through three. Yeah. three albums before you decide um yeah. okay and as i come later george mm-hmm. i'm gonna go for i'm gonna go for album that tore up the rule book for me okay um because i'm a big fan of you know i think with an artist i'm a big fan of people who take i guess the the archetypal model for this is madonna but it's people who take what they've done before rip it up and reinvent themselves and become something else. And I kind of think it's the ultimate key to longevity in something as transient as the pop world uh, is to kind of decide, you know, Picasso did it. He constantly reinvented himself. Just that idea of saying what I was yesterday, I'm going to kind of completely screw with your expectations and not give you what you're expecting. This, so, I guess this is where the offspring boys fell down and the Blink-182. <laughs> Yeah, this is where pop punk kind of uh, struggles a bit. It does, it does get a bit the samey until it peters out. Um, I, uh, I've already discussed this album on a past podcast, George, but 
It's got to be Jesus by Kanye West. Okay. And this is it, sorry. This is the it, album that defines your thirties. We say or your twenties. It defines my mid twenties. Okay. Um, there's a a definitive mid twenties period where, you know, anyone can easily argue that the album before that of Kanye West is his masterpiece, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, and you'd have a great case. Um, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is definitely his most you know, sort of sonically pleasing. It's very rich and lush in its uh, production. Um, it's got tons of big tracks, power, all of the lights, runaway. You know, I think Dark Fantasy is an incredible album. The thing is, though, Yeezus for me defined something important where it was, it's almost influenced me in a bigger way than Dark Fantasy because Dark Fantasy is kind of an overstuffed, it's a big album. Um, whereas Yeezus was everything that album isn't. It was it, it, it was stripped down into a more minimalist style by Rick Rubin and others who took out loads of the production. It's 10 tracks. It moves very quickly. I think it's all done in about half an hour, maybe less. And from the very first track on site, it just sounds like, what the hell is this? And it's almost like aggressively in your face. And then it goes to Black Skinhead, which is one of the best songs Kanye West has ever written. Um, you go to Blood on the Leaves, which has all these undertones of uh, racism and kind of touches on cultural issues. And then you get to like uh, Hold My Liquor, which is kind of this more mournful track looking at his mistakes. And it's just, it's got such a sort of, um, I like that it's so unradio friendly. I like that it almost alienated people who liked his previous things, his more poppy rap. Um, easy to listen to rap and this album isn't easy to listen to but it's it kind of puts me in a state of thinking that's that's what an artist does you you know it feels like he completely put himself all over that album uh it's different it's not like anything that came before and uh yeah I just I just was thought it was incredibly important when I first heard it and I think it's probably gonna age quite well do you think um is that because you've you've taken something from that of saying the way you write or you do stuff like you're try it's made you make decisions about stripping things back and paring down and trying to be different? Have you actually taken a lesson from it, or you just yeah, I, I, interest? Yeah, I think it's pervade. It's a it's a reference point for me. It's a constant reference point when I if I write something, I'm I'm very into things that are economical and do the least the least necessary, so they don't uh you know, not overstuffing things. I'm a big believer in not outstaying your welcome, uh, cutting back where possible. Um, and and just, also I'm that just, just that I... Poor listeners. <laughs> yeah, except on podcasting, apparently. Um, and just the idea of, um, yeah, just, just in terms of like when, you know, there's a lyric in there specifically that is first make them like you, you make, then make them unlike you. And it's kind of like, exactly what Kanye West is doing in that album is like he gave everyone what they wanted with the previous one and then this one is almost like what he says what they didn't want but what they need and I like that idea of not having to give people what they want immediately but maybe what they need or didn't know they wanted um so yeah it's it's a reference point for me of just do something different than you did before yeah I think that's, that's a really interesting pick I I have a kind of I've not really been following him as much in the last sort of 18 months, two years when he's been a lot more 
kind of part of media headlines for reasons outside of his you know artistic career but my kind of thesis on him is that his first few albums up to and including Twisted Fantasy are a kind of a journey of ascendancy right like he's you know he's trying and increasingly achieving becoming kind of the main man in hip-hop and rap and production and I feel like after that he didn't really know where to go but I feel like Jesus was a complete sort of free hit that he had that he smashed out of the park almost because he did this really lush and curated and um, artistically ambitious Twisted Fantasy album and then just went super abrasive because he had this free swing and he absolutely nailed it whereas I feel like the things that have come since then after that journey has been achieved it's almost like he achieved all the things he needed to and now it's a bit harder for him to know where to go that's my kind of pop philosophy insight on where he's gone but I feel like Jesus was was the maybe the only free swing in that way that he would have because after that there's just been a lot more baggage but um yeah it's a, it's a great album I don't think it has maybe for me personally as much replay value as the others just because it is that bit more abrasive it sort of limits the times that I would listen to it. I need to be almost, yeah. you know, ready to play a, you know, go for a run or play a, like a competitive sports game once get pumped yeah. up. Whereas yeah. the earlier albums have more, some more melodic songs, melodic, it's not the right phrase, but you know, some slightly more easily accessible songs. Whereas, yeah, that one is, is all a very, very set mood and tone that isn't one I would want to investigate every day, but, you know, there's there's some incredible stuff on it. Um, I think yeah. for yeah. me, that's probably his last great piece of work. Um, but we'll see what, I think it just what gets, happens. Yeah, it just gets like the next album after that is quite. It's a it's a hodgepodge of a lot of different ideas. Some work, some don't. Um, and it kind of, it, I guess, it kind of feels like that a bit since where just some things work, some things don't. But that that has more well, I feel like Ye Jesus was the last album that he finished <laughs> and since then it's just been <laughs> it's like that everything's become a bit more of a performance piece or like the medium is the message with him it's like oh well because I'm putting an album out that in itself is the interesting thing rather than actually you know finishing finishing the songs and picking the artwork that he wants and I feel part of me feels like if you're not going to bother writing it until 20 minutes before it needs to be published then I'm not going to bother listening to it or <laughs> you know like do me the courtesy of completing the work if you know I, I don't mean that in a sort of patronizing way it's it's you know he put so much work and effort in something like Twisted Fantasy or the others just like you know years of effort and then to you know slightly toss off the later versions is a little bit um maybe a little bit i don't think he's interested in the albums he's just released anymore so why should i be you know do you know what i mean yeah, by that? No, i know what you mean i know what you mean yeah it feels like it's more yeah yeah it's uh it feels sloppier a bit than than what was happening before yeah um uh still a great i mean you know there's there's enough good stuff in there to uh to you know, Sonic praise Kanye. Keeps interested, yeah, for sure. Um, well, Steve, you've you've avoided hitting thirty for as long as possible, but what's what's your album of now? Okay, I don't I don't really have one right now. I mean, the <laughs> things you know, the things I the things I listen to a lot at the moment. I mean, probably over the last year or so, prob it's probably going to be like a Kendrick Lamar album, maybe mm -hmm. Pimp to Pimp a Butterfly or um, or Damn, just because. 
they're probably the albums more of the moment that I listen to a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, To Pimp a Butterfly is obviously a very important, influential album, but uh, probably, probably that, but also probably a soundtrack as well. Um, and this is a little off the wall, but a soundtrack as well in a similar way to rewriting the rules a bit. It's the, this is a, this is a soundtrack I just listen to a lot to work to. Uh, listen to for a certain mood uh, and it's the social network soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Oh cool. Um, is that the music and, like the score or is that the like the what there's the White Stripes track and stuff like that is it the which is No it's it? all it's all just the complete original score that right, okay. underscores the whole movie and it's um it's it, they won an uh, Trent Reznor won an Oscar for it for the soundtrack. It's incredibly um it completely utterly fits the mood of the movie it's it's edgy it's dark it has kind of strange little bits and bites and beeps because it's all about technology it has some more mournful tracks that are about the kind of loneliness of the mark zuckerberg character and his friends in the film it kind of has it has a bit of a yeah it it it, it just has this feeling of i don't know there's a kind of the the coldness of the movie, but also with these hints of light and interest. And it's kind of something I just listened. I, I zone out a lot to it when I'm just working. There's about six tracks on there that I just kind of have on repeat. And it just kind of completely sets the moodscape of I'm in my room working on something. On and, a computer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing genius things on my laptop. basically. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's just a really cool, uh, completely unusual for a soundtrack and probably has I, I know Trent Reznor's written several soundtracks since and even more for David Fincher but it was uh, I think it w is looked at as one of the great modern soundtracks awesome well that, yeah. I mean there's some good there's some just good individual tracks in that film as well right it's just who did Reznor pick the songs that are used as well as score it or did they have someone else do that I don't know, actually. I don't know. I think that's, um, that's probably my dream job, Steve, would be like music, sort of, what's the word, director or executive for a, for a film, just score picking the, picking the soundtrack for a film. I'd, I'd bloody love to do that. And if you want a little complimentary soundtrack, uh, the Lost in Translation soundtrack, coupled with that, they, you can work to them all day. So the uh, Lost in Translation, the film Bill Murray, that has the song more than this on it, George. Oh, okay. That's where that was. Okay, nice. Bill Murray singing that song. Um, yeah, those two together, the, uh, yeah, you can, just, you can just zone out to them for ages and just work. So those would be the picks. Good stuff. Okay, well, that... They're all they're all good things there. Um, you nearly had two soundtracks and a greatest hit, but you uh, you just about got away with that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, well, Steve, I love talking about music. I think the I think the thing that's difficult about it is just narrowing it down enough to have an interesting conversation. I think that's what um, what's quite difficult. So if we can pick ourselves some some more sort of concise topics, then this is something I'd like to revisit again and again and again. Uh, yeah, we can do that, and uh, I'll have to, I'll have to find ways to narrow my list to more manageable levels. Um, so, thank you for bearing with us and being patient on 
the musical journey of our short so far lives um and i suppose that means we have no other recommendations for you because we've we've just been churning them out through this so uh, books and shock full of them (laughs) yeah um yeah so we'll 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 go to books and movies again another week um george is there anything you want to add before we that's me done steve All right. Well, thank you so much for this topic, George. Thank you guys for listening to us. And hey, why not on SoundCloud or Twitter or Instagram, comment and tell us what the albums that defined your life are so that we get some recommendations back from you as well. Nice. Um, And you can now download this podcast on iTunes, on Spotify uh, or SoundCloud. Uh, Not Stitcher at the moment. Maybe we'll look into that if people um but yeah we're we're in a few places now so you can decide where to listen um okay i'm gonna go try and enjoy this rainy la day uh and i'm gonna catch up with you soon george awesome and uh yeah thank you for joining us everyone great stuff cheers guys all right bye